God, indeed, we sing of not just our plentiful sins and not merely the greatness of your mercy, but we sing of the greatness of you. God, you are steadfast in your love. You are the one who is gracious. You are the one who is patient with us and in your kindness leads us to repentance. It is you who speak tenderly to us, to woo us to yourself, to remind us of life that is found in you and you alone. You are the one who shows us the emptiness of sin, the destruction of sin. And you are the one that holds out life for all who will take it. God, you have been pleased to reveal yourself through the scriptures and more than that, through Jesus himself. And in Christ, we see the grace of God itself. We see the kindness of God itself. We see mercy. We see love. So much love, in fact, that you sent Jesus not only to show us our need for him, but also to resolve all the need and all the sorrow and all the pain through his life, through his death, through his resurrection. God, there is life to be had. There is wholeness to experience. There is peace. So, Father, we give you thanks in this place for the freedom to confess to you that we are indeed sinful. More sinful than we probably realize or are willing to admit. And in light of all that sin, your mercy is still more. We can never outpace your grace. We can never overextend your love. Because you are infinite and you are eternal and you're always present and always willing to give more than we are willing to ask. And so, Father, those of us who have received this grace and mercy and forgiveness in Jesus Christ, we ask that you would cause within us an overflowing of gratitude and of love for having been forgiven of so much. And God, we pray that as we come to your word, which does indeed reveal you to us, we pray that you would illumine the scriptures, that our minds would comprehend, our hearts would sense deep in our souls just how profound your mercies truly are. So God, speak to us, we pray. As we sit here as your servants and you as our God, speak. And in all that you say, Lord, may we surrender. We come to you now, Lord. Do in us and through us all that you will. And we will give you the glory as we receive this joy. In Jesus' name, amen. Oh, good morning. Happy New Year to you all. Hopefully you had a safe New Year. Um, I ask people, hey, how was your New Year? And most everyone is uh, blushingly said, uh, good. And I'm thinking either you were up to no good <laughs> or you were embarrassed to say you went to bed like I did at about 10 o'clock. So either way, uh, glad that you made it here. It's very cold outside. I was telling some people outside as I was talking in the courtyard briefly, I'm so glad we're not meeting outside anymore. <laughs> it is cold. So 
Uh, if you're new to our church, I do want to say welcome. My name is Phil. I'm one of the pastors here at Golden Hills. And uh, if you have any questions about our church, we would be more than happy to answer those questions. We'd be more than willing to direct you in any way uh, that would be beneficial and helpful. Um, we do want to direct you to our website. It has a lot of information, which is helpful there. We're going to be revamping our website. We're going to be launching a new app, which is going to be very helpful in communication. We're going to be able to communicate more quickly, more clearly. Um, and so we'll let you know about when all that happens. Um, we do have a resource email that goes out to all who want to be a part of that list. Uh, if you're not a part of that list and don't want to be, that's all right. Uh, we have a QR code that we encourage you to take a picture of. It'll send you to the link of all the different resources, one of them being our bulletin. In our bulletin, there's some uh, important announcements. There's also the sermon outline and also some reflection questions. And for those of you who don't want to do the whole digital thing, um, I want to let you know we still have the bulletins available on limited uh, amount. We've stopped printing them for a number of reasons, but they are available if you should want one. And again, you can see the announcements and the sermon outline and everything that's in there. Uh, I want to let you know that there are a few things coming up this month that you should be aware of. Number one is this, uh, in no particular importance, but we are taking a trip to the biblical lands. Uh, Pastor Rick Moe is going to be leading a trip to uh, Egypt and to uh, different parts of Israel. And Heather and I will be leading a trip to Israel and we'll be uh, covering the Galilee area in Jerusalem and, and down to the Dead Sea. If you're interested in information on that, we have an information class uh, next week and also the following Tuesday. Uh, Rick Moe, I believe, is still in the, um, in the lobby area and he can answer any questions, give out paperwork if you're interested in that. Uh, next week as well, we have a small group leader info meeting. If you've ever thought about leading a small group, thinking about what it entails, uh, what you need to do to be qualified in order to lead a small group, it's a great information meeting. Pastor Matt will be leading that, and uh, you can get all the insights uh, there. Um, and also next week, we're going to start our membership and baptism class. So it's four weeks long, learning about what the church here at Golden Hills is all about. We're going to learn the doctrine of the church. We're going to learn about what our philosophy of ministry is and what we value. And then also we'll have our baptism class the last week. Speaking of baptism, on the 16th, we're going to have our baptism out on the courtyard. And uh, we're praying for a little bit more mild weather. If not, then all those who are going to be baptized will have a memorable baptism. Uh, as they get dunked in a steaming hot tub of water and get out in the frigid cold. So uh, we'll be working that out. Uh, and do invite you to come early, stay late. If you come to 1030 service, come early and witness the baptisms right around 10 o'clock. If you come to 830 service, stay a little late and uh, celebrate with us what the Lord is doing in these folks' lives. Uh, our business meeting, our annual business meeting where we ratify our elders and deacons is coming up on the 23rd. Uh, we'll also be approving a budget, and we'll be t uh, removing members and welcoming new members in. And uh, anyways, it's going to be a great night. If you are a member here at Golden Hills, the expectation is you will be there. I'm not inviting you. I am telling you uh, that we should be there. Um, and then if you're not a member of Golden Hills, but you want to know a little bit more about the business side of the church, we're very transparent, very open. We have nothing to hide. We invite you to come and listen and participate in that. Uh, what else is there? Oh, and lastly, our office will be closed tomorrow in observance of New Year's. That was good. And that was much faster than the last service. So, uh, if you have a copy of God's Word with you, I want to invite you to open up to Luke chapter 7. Luke chapter 7. One of my favorite stories uh, in the Bible. 
And it contains a couple of characters which are important for us to know about. It reveals the very heart of God because remember Jesus is how God reveals himself most clearly. And it also uh, involves a very important parable uh, in the ministry of Jesus. There's just a lot going on here and it's really breathtaking, really amazing uh, what's happening in Luke chapter 7. You know, we live in a world uh, where animosity is growing. I don't know if you noticed that. Uh, in fact, uh, recently, um, I came across a couple articles that were writing about some of this phenomenon. And now our society is being identified as the age of scrutiny or the age of scorn. Or uh, the other one was an age of disrespect. Um, and it's growing I think you probably observed a little bit of that, but it's becoming uh, an age in which people are malicious in the way that we treat one another. In fact, there's been studies that are showing that word usage online, that is uh, social media, that means like posting in the comment section on, you know, whatever, next door and East Bay Times or whatever, um, and all these kinds of things. And what they're showing, these studies, is that the language being used is becoming more hostile, more malicious, more slanderous, and uh, just generally more negative. And that's a, a problem. We are living in a society that believes it's okay to talk trash about people online and slander them and do all kinds of stuff. It's just kind of the nature of it. In fact, I was reading a biopic about a Christian politician uh, who was giving an interview, and he said this. He said, I think our people, referring to Christians who engage in politics, I think our people are hating the right people. Let me say that again. A Christian politician being interviewed in a church, and says, I think our people are beginning to hate the right people. For me, that is disgusting. That Christians could sit and could actually categorize people in such a way that you could identify some people as being worthy of your hatred. And in fact, it's not just you can hate them, it's that it's right to hate them. Increasingly, love and respect and decency and honor are being seen as weaknesses. They're being considered secondary values. And I don't think we realize this as much as we probably should, but this is drastically affecting our witness in the world. Because the manner in which we treat each other is a reflection of how we view Jesus. And how we treat each other will help other people get a particular view of what Jesus is like. So through our words and through our conduct, we are displaying to the world, this is what God is like. He's malicious and vindictive. God is a God of malice and hatred. And as you know, that's not true. So the way that others see Jesus in us is going to have a profound effect on whether or not people will want to follow Jesus. 
And the way in which we love each other and serve each other or hate each other is going to be a direct reflection upon the very nature and person of Jesus himself. We're going to see some of these things flesh out for us in Luke chapter 7. We're going to see this Pharisee, his name is Simon, who is going to categorize the sinful unnamed woman. And in categorizing her as a sinner, he now believes that he has the freedom to hate her, to disdain her, to dishonor her and disrespect her. Because after all, she qualifies to be in this sinner category. And so this idea that there are people that it's okay to hate is not new. And we're going to be introduced to this woman. She's unnamed, a woman of the city. She has probably not the greatest reputation. She's disrespected and dishonored, but yet her interaction with Jesus is so beautiful. And it is important for us to see why she does what she does. And then we'll see Jesus how he responds to each of these people and what we can learn from that. So here we go. Luke chapter 7, verse 36. One of the Pharisees asked Jesus to eat with them. And he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, She began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is and is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors, one owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And Jesus said to him, you've judged rightly. Then turning towards the woman, Jesus said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little and Jesus said to her your sins are forgiven then those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves who is this who even forgives sins and he said to the woman your faith has saved you go in peace beautiful I love this story because of how Jesus flips the situation on its head the unwanted is found to be wanted Those who think they are found actually are shown to be lost. The one who believes they are virtuous is actually the one who is revealed to be the sinner. There's plot twist, suspense. So I want to introduce you to these people a little bit, give a little bit of background. We're introduced to this man named Simon. He's a Pharisee. 
As you probably well know, Pharisees are well known for being highly religious. They were the kinds of people who studied the scriptures diligently, who tried to find as much truth as possible and to live out that truth as faithfully as they could. There are things in the Bible which are not equally clear. There are some things which are truly easy to see black and white. But there are some gray areas. So the Pharisees saw the gray areas of Scripture and of life, and they thought this is the opportunity for us. They created their own system of do's and don'ts within the framework of that gray area. So then in basically creating the standard, they then could apply it to people. And they go, okay, keeping the Ten Commandments is good, but have you thought about these other 633 commandments that we have? And then every implication of those, you know, because if you really keep all that, now you're really on it. And they became adept. They became really, really skilled at evaluating and judging other people, not merely according to God's word, but according to the standards that they created. And they began to apply it to not only themselves, but to others as well. And it's this man, Simon, who invites Jesus to his house. I love this. One of the reasons why I love this is because many people, and for a really long time, Many Christians have this weird kind of notion that Jesus doesn't like religious people. And they always cite, usually, they always cite um, the fact that Jesus eats with sinners and tax collectors. You heard this before? I remember, I've only been a Christian for, you know, 20 years. I remember reading books and I remember hearing sermons. I remember being at a college camp, a Hume Lake Christian camp, where the speaker actually said these words, Jesus loves people who don't go to church more than those who do. I'm like, what? That's ludicrous. And his evidence was, Jesus always ate with sinners and tax collectors. And I'm going, not always. Uh, Because he got invited to Simon's house, and guess what? He showed up. Not only that, but if you turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 14, verse 1, one Sabbath when Jesus went to dine at the house of the ruler of the Pharisees. So on more than one occasion, Jesus is actually eating with Pharisees in their house. And he's also eating with sinners and tax collectors. And why is Jesus doing that? And the reason Jesus is doing that is because regardless of how your religious performance is going, whether it's really good or really bad, All of us are in need of Jesus. Jesus is an equal opportunity savior. All of us need him. Now, as they were at Simon's house, they were all reclining at table. Let me paint a picture for you to help you understand what's going on. Uh, When people ate in the Middle Eastern, ancient Near East, at somebody's house, the table would be like it's a low table. It would be at the center of the room. And in being in the center of the room, the people who are eating together would lie on their left elbow and their head would be facing the table. So it's kind of like a hub where there's like human spokes. Their feet would be at the end, their head towards the table. They would reach over with their right hand and they would eat. And so that means on the exterior of the kind of gathering, it was people's feet. I'm not a feet guy. So, I have a hard time uh, imagining that. But that was why it was so important for people to have their feet washed when they ate, because you're so close to the food. 
Not only that, but then you would have the slaves and the servants would walk around the table and they would provide whatever services needed for the people who were gathering. And it was their responsibility to wash the feet and to provide whatever needs were there because they were closest to the people's feet. So here is Jesus in the house of Simon reclining at table. That's what it means to recline, sitting on his left elbow, reaching over, grabbing the nachos. The feet are extended out. And we read in verse 37, And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, she came in. Now, this woman of the city, we don't know much about her. In fact, she is called the woman of the city. She is referred to as a sinner. And if you notice in the story, she is never given a name. And you and I know if you're never given a name, being nameless meaning, means you have no identity. And if you have no identity, then you have no dignity. And so here is this woman who has no identity, no dignity, and it seems to be a woman of bad reputation. And why we know it's a bad reputation is because in verse 39, Simon says to himself, man, if Jesus only knew what kind of woman this is. So she was probably well known for not good things. This nameless, featureless, unassuming woman comes in. Now, to be at somebody's feet is humiliating. That's reserved for slaves. And so what we see is this woman comes in, and immediately she's greeted by feet. But she brings in an alabaster flask of ointment, verse, the end of verse 37, and standing behind Jesus at his feet, weeping. She began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now we learn later on that Jesus came into this meal and uh, in verse 44, nobody was there to clean his feet. So just imagine for a second, Jesus has been traveling, he's dirty because they, you know, they didn't, they didn't have like closed-toed shoes and so he comes in with dirt caked in his toenails and all and it's just bad. And so there he is, sitting at the table, left arm laying out with his feet kicked out to the side, reaching for food. And as they are eating, in comes this woman with no reputation that's of any good, considered a woman of the city, unnamed, unrecognized, undignified. And as she comes in, she stands there, and she is at Jesus' feet, standing behind him, and at his feet. And you can imagine for a second, I think in pictures, and so I imagine this scene where since they're all facing each other, the people who are on the other side of Jesus are leaning on their left elbow, reaching with their right hand, and they're eating, and they're looking right into each other's faces. But in comes this woman, and you can imagine as they're sitting there eating, whoa, who in the world is this? And everyone stops. Everyone stops eating. There comes a hush over the room. And probably all the eyes begin to look over at this woman. Who in the world is this? This woman then, I imagine, because she has her hair hanging over Jesus' feet and her tears are falling on his feet. I imagine then, instead of just standing there, she actually drops to her knees. Seeing the feet of Jesus dirty, 
her tears falling, and every tear that falls into Jesus' feet creates that round little circle of moisture. And towards the periphery of that round circle goes all the dirt. And she takes her hair and she's wiping his feet. Now, for a woman in this day and age to have her hair down is not good. Women were supposed to always have their hair up. That's where that expression, you got to let your hair down. It means something bad's about to happen. So here's this woman with her hair down, standing at the feet of, sitting, kneeling perhaps at the feet of Jesus, weeping, wiping his feet. Now, being at people's feet is disgusting. Being at people's feet was humiliating. It was reserved for the lowest of low. If you recall, when Jesus wanted to demonstrate to the disciples what it meant to follow him, he wanted to make sure they understood it's a life of service. And the way in which Jesus most clearly showed the disciples a life of service is when he washed their feet. You remember that in John chapter 13? Jesus stands up, takes a towel around him, bends down and washes the disciples' feet. And in pride, Simon Peter says, you will not wash my feet. And Jesus says, I must. I came not to be served, but to serve and give my life as a ransom for many. The most humiliating, the most degrading thing that a person could do is to be the one in charge of cleaning feet. So much so that when John the Baptist wanted to differentiate his status with Jesus' status, he says, I come baptizing you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming. And look at this phrase, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. I am so low in the pecking order. I am such a groveling worm. I can't even untie Jesus' sandals. I am the lowest of the low. I am nothing. So here is this woman, by her demonstration, revealing to everyone in the room how she views herself. I am the lowest of the low. I have nothing to offer. I have nothing to give. I'm worse than a slave. I have no name, no dignity, no respect. I have no reputation. I have nothing. And there she is, kneeling, weeping. Wiping Jesus' feet, anointing his feet with oil. And I don't want us to miss this. Feet are associated with good things. It's hard for me to believe, but it is. Isaiah 52, this is also a, a text of scripture cited by the Apostle Paul in Romans 10. It goes like this. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news. Who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. I imagine this kind of text is in her mind as she comes into the room, falling on her knees in desperation, in utter need, with nothing to offer, and she sees the feet of Jesus. These are the beautiful feet of the one who brings good news. These are the feet of the beautiful one who brings gladness and happiness. This is the feet of the one who brings salvation. Look how beautiful they are. And she's helping us to understand in Christ there are so many joys, so, many, so much peace. There is salvation. 
Now, verse 39. When the Pharisee who invited Jesus saw this, he said to himself, notice he says to himself, this is an inner dialogue. You know I've had this. He says, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who's touching him. For she is a sinner. You see, at this time, Jesus is starting to be famous. In fact, he raised someone from the dead. If you go back in your Bibles, Luke chapter 7, verse 14, he says to this young man who has died, arise. And in verse 15, the dead man stand, or sat up and begins to speak. Jesus gave him to his mother and, uh, duh, everyone freaked out. And they begin to glorify God. And they are saying a great prophet has arisen among us. God has visited his people. And a report began to be spread throughout the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country about this. Truly a prophet is here. Truly God has visited us. And so here is Simon having invited Jesus into his house to eat with them. Is looking at this whole scene where this ungodly, unsightly, sinful woman comes in and is touching Jesus and Simon is thinking to himself, if this guy is who everyone thinks he is, a prophet, he would not be okay with this. So he has this inner dialogue about how despicable this woman is. And then you see Jesus, verse 40, Jesus answering him says something. The man did not verbalize his thoughts, but Jesus knew him. That would freak me out. You and I have done this before where we have this thought in our head and all of a sudden somebody said, what was that? And you're like, oh no. Did I just, did I just say what I was thinking? Oh no. And you can't remember what you said and you don't know if you can take it back. So Jesus answers Simon who's been thinking to himself. He says this, Simon, I have something to say to you. Now, we don't understand this uh, in our Western culture today, um, but what's happening here is really interesting. Uh, in Eastern cultures, in, in Middle Eastern cultures, when you talk to somebody and you have to bring bad news, you don't do what we Americans and we in the West do. Because we Americans and we in the West, if you've ever read a good management book or a leadership book, you know how to break bad news to somebody. First, you sit down with them, pull up a chair, and then you tell them how good they are. Uh, all the things that they do right, how you appreciate them. And what you do is you kind of like, you know, you start with the good stuff. So that way, when you deliver the bad thing, it won't be such a drastic blow. But if you're a Middle Eastern or of the ancient Near East, you actually perceive that as a dishonor. You perceive that as flattery. Where somebody has just flattered you. They just buttered you up. They make you feel good. And now they're going to deliver the real thing that they want to talk about. And it's totally dishonoring. And I've made the mistake of doing that on more than one occasion. Until somebody, it was a guy in our church who had been in our church for a number of years. He was from Iraq and he came to me and he goes, Phil, you need to understand when you do that, here's how it's perceived by many people. And he let me know. And I was like, whoa. So they developed an ancient Near East, Middle Eastern culture. They, they developed this way of delivering bad news by telling you directly, by saying, I have something I got to share with you. And everyone knew what that meant. That's like the screech on the record player. Uh-oh. It's about to go down. So Jesus does that. I have something to say to you, and it's not going to feel good. And Simon, the Pharisee, Believing that he, you know, exudes virtue and he's a man above reproach, he's like, go ahead. I got thick skin. Give it to me. I can take it. And so 
Having questioned Jesus' credentials privately, Jesus is now going to expose Simon. And he does so by giving this parable. He says in verse 41, A certain money lender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii. That was about a day's wage or so. And the other 50. When they could not pay, they had no means to pay for their debt. The one to whom they were indebted simply canceled the debt of both. It's a beautiful parable. It's basically the idea that two different people, one has a small debt, one has a large debt. Neither of them could pay the debt. And the one who holds the debt forgives both. And then Jesus asks this question to see if Simon's paying attention. He says, now, which of them will love him more? So you have the one who's indebted 50 denarii, one who's indebted 500 denarii, and you have the one who is the debt collector, so to speak. Each of them come and say, we can't pay. And the man, presumably, or woman, says, your debt is canceled. Which of those two people are going to respond with the greatest amount of gratitude and love? You see, given in this parable, spoken in this context where this sinful woman is sitting at the feet of Jesus, wiping his feet with tears, and Simon is questioning Jesus and treating him with suspicion and thinking that he is not who he says he is, when Jesus tells this parable, what he's doing is he's helping people to understand and identify with one or some of the characters. In other words, this woman represents the the person who has 500 denarii debt. And you, Simon, you are represented by the person who has the 50 denarii debt. And I, being God, I forgive the debt. And of course, the debt here is sin. Because the woman is called a sinner. Presumably, Simon believes he's not a sinner. And therefore, compared to the woman, he has much less sin. She has much more sin. She has 500 denarii of sin. He has 50. And so Jesus wants to expose Simon's heart and simply ask the question, which of you two, Simon or this woman, loves me more? It's an amazing question. And then we see Simon's answer, verse 43. He says, the one, I suppose, you notice that's his out, I guess, I don't know. The one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. Yeah, that makes sense to you and I. The bank calls you one day and says, you know, you got $400,000 left on your home. We're just going to forgive it. (laughs) Let's go to Applebee's, celebrate If a friend comes to you and says, you owe me four bucks, but I'll forgive you. You're like, for real? All right, thanks, man. Whatever. You shrug it off. And so Simon gets it right. Here's what Jesus says. The end of verse 43, you have judged rightly. You're right, Simon. That's exactly it. The one who has a great debt in having their debt forgiven, will have great love and gratitude as a response. That's right. But if you don't have that much of a debt and you are forgiven 
the response will not be all that great. You won't be filled with graciousness, gratitude, or love. You'll just be like, eh. And so what's hanging in the air, I believe, right here is an inference. It's, it's an assumption, I think, where Jesus is kind of saying, look, Simon, you know how to judge rightly about theoretical issues. But my concern for you, Simon, is that I'm not sure that you can judge rightly in real life issues. Hypothetically, you know love. Hypothetically, you know mercy. Hypothetically, you know grace. You know forgiveness. But in real life, I'm not so sure. So, will Simon judge rightly about this woman? Because that's really what's going on. Simon is questioning Jesus, but simultaneously he's questioning this woman. And Jesus is helping us to understand that the way in which you view Jesus is related to the way in which you view others, and the way you view others is related to the way you view Jesus. You can't separate the two. That's why marriage counseling, oftentimes I'll hear things like, yeah, our marriage is on the rocks, and a husband will say, but my relationship with God has never been better. No. Because your relationship with your wife is part of your relationship with God. And if you can't treat her properly, don't fool yourself into thinking that you really are right with the Lord. Because being wrong, being not right, having something between you and the Lord is going to have some sort of effect horizontally with the people around you. So the evidence that something's wrong with Simon's heart It's not just that he mistreats Jesus or misunderstands Jesus. It's that he mistreats and misunderstands the woman. Now, up to this point, Simon has viewed Jesus, like I've said, with suspicion. He's viewed this woman with disdain. Jesus tells this parable to expose Simon's heart. Simon, I'm concerned that your heart is cold and loveless towards not only me, but other people. You've judged rightly in theory, but I want you to judge rightly in real life. And so here's how Jesus helps him. Verse 44. Then turning toward the woman, Jesus said to Simon. I want you to just picture this with me, okay? Because this is really significant. The woman is kneeling at Jesus' feet. Remember, weeping, anointing his feet wiping her, his feet with her hair. Everyone is just stopped, like, what is going on? Jesus understands what Simon is thinking to himself, questioning Jesus, questioning this woman. And in order to help expose Simon's need for Jesus and to show him the condition of his heart is just wicked, it's not right. Jesus is no longer sitting on his elbow, reaching with his right hand to eat the food with the woman at his feet. Instead, he has to look at this woman, and so he pushes himself up from his elbow, turns around to his butt perhaps, or maybe even gets on his knees, and he's on his knees facing this woman. And you can imagine her because she's so dejected and she has no sense of dignity and self-worth or anything like that. Her head is laid low, her hair is over her face with tears streaming down. She doesn't want to make eye contact with anybody, especially Jesus. 
And I can imagine Jesus simply knowing that she is in such a posture, in such a position, kneeling down, looking at her, he raises her chin until her eyes meet his. And in that moment, she feels seen, dignified, loved. Maybe for the first time in a long time. But what's amazing is Jesus lifts her chin, looks into her eyes. Simon, do you see this woman? He talks to Simon while looking at the woman. I'm I'm not asking Simon if you noticed that she came into your house. I'm asking you, do you see her? Do you see her value? Do you see her worth? Do you see that she's in need? Do you see her brokenness? Simon, do you see her? Everyone's attention is riveted on this woman. Everyone's attention is riveted on Jesus. What's going to happen next? You see, Jesus does for this woman what Simon would not do. Honor her. Respect her. See that she's a human being made in the image of God. The Pharisees were really skilled at drawing certain conclusions about people. They could look at somebody and they could look at what decisions they make, the way they dressed and conducted themselves, and they they believed that they could draw certain conclusions about that person. Because you don't look a certain way, talk a certain way, believe a certain thing, or behave a certain way, I know what kind of person you are. And they felt justified to ignore those people or to treat them dishonorably. And that's exactly what Simon's doing to this woman and what he's doing to Jesus. And that kind of Pharisaism, treating others as though they are unwelcomed in your company because they don't meet some sort of standard that you have made up, that is still alive and well in our culture today. So what I want to do is I want to offer two examples. I have a whole host of other examples, but only time for two. And there are many others I could use. But we are seeing a similar Pharisaism in our culture today. And it's the idea that if you don't think a certain way, act a certain way, believe a certain way, you're out. And I have no obligation to love you. I have no obligation to respect you. And I have no obligation to honor you. Because... You're not part of my tribe. We see this, for instance, in the, and the reason why I have these two examples is this, not because I have an ax to grind. I have these two examples because uh, I was recently talking with some pastors from across the country. It was pastors from Ohio, um, uh, Illinois, Arizona, Nevada, California, um, Minnesota. And as we were sitting in this, well, we're online, but as we were talking, Um, some of the questions came up like, what are the things you guys are struggling with? What are some prayer areas? And some of the pastors were saying, man, I'm just having a hard time because we have a lot of members and people leaving our church. And uh, when we try to reach out to them, they refuse to talk to us. They refuse to to really engage in any kind of dialogue. They're just like really cold and kind of rude and stuff. And it's just really hard. It hurts my heart. 
And so they started talking about it. And um, what we started noticing was that it, it really was two areas in particular. There's a couple others that were mentioned, but in two particular areas in the last couple of years, we've seen a whole exodus of people out of certain churches that are going to other churches. And so the two areas that we saw in common, which is just happening most, is in the area of racism and abortion. And so some of these pastors were sharing, yeah, my, some people in my church don't believe I'm hard enough on racism and so they've left and gone to the church that is or people in my church don't think I'm hard enough on abortion and so I so they left and they go to another church and the reason I bring this up is I can relate to that because the elders and I have received many letters from uh, former members and whatnot who have said the same thing is that we are a church that espouses white supremacy or we are a church that hates life now the reason for this, I believe, is this, is it's no longer acceptable to merely believe that racism is evil and wrong. You must now be an anti-racist according to the terms and to the degree which is acceptable by certain people who set the terms. So if your words and your actions or your attitudes do not measure up to their particular standard and you don't say the particular words in the particular manner, then you are an enemy of the cause and fellowship can now be justified to be broken. Likewise, if you're not pro-life enough, it's not good enough for you to know that abortion is evil and sinful. You must now be missionally anti-abortion according to the terms and to the degree acceptable by the people who make the terms. If your words and your actions or your attitude do not measure up to that particular standard, then you are an enemy of life, and it is now justified to break fellowship with you. Now, brothers and sisters, we should be wholeheartedly against racism and against abortion as Christians. But that's not the issue anymore. That's not good enough. In our culture today, we have to meet a certain threshold of criteria you have to have a certain level of outrage. You have to say certain words in a particular manner and you need to say them big and bold and as quickly as possible because if you don't, then those who are in that world will question your credentials of whether or not you belong in our tribe. And so we've had people at our church, we've had people in churches all across America who are like, you're just not strong enough on this topic or that topic, so I'm breaking fellowship and we're leaving. And I'm saying, where are you getting this measure of threshold? Like, is it, I don't know, is it an up-down? Like, I'm only at 44%, you need to be at 51% to be accepted? Or is it like a horizontal thing where you kind of, you know, you need to get, like, level up like a video game to a certain point, and then you're accepted? I know the scriptures are clear, black and white. Death is wrong, racism is wrong. But now, all of a sudden, we've levied this standard of degree. You have to be a certain degree of outrage. You need to have a certain level of intensity. You need to have a certain expression outwardly in order to show your credentials that you're a part of the tribe. And if not, then I will have nothing to do with you. And so people have broken fellowship. They've refused to talk to each other. They've refused to share a meal together. They've refused to interact with one another. They unfriend people. They block people. And they say, you're in a category that now I'm justified 
to hate. You're the right kind of person for me to hate. You support abortion or you don't hate it enough, and therefore it's right and good for me to hate you. It's okay. But Jesus is being incredibly helpful here. This woman and Simon both believe that God wants obedience. But here's the interesting thing. This woman has lived a life of disobedience and this man has lived a life of cold, heartless obedience. And both of them are wrong. Did you see? You can live your whole life in disobedience and be out with the Lord. And you can live your whole life in obedience, but to have no heart behind it, no genuine affections behind it, and you're still out when it comes with the Lord. Because God demands heartfelt obedience. So here's the thing I want to say. If our campaign against racism or our campaign against the evils of abortion cause us to be scornful and to ridicule and to hate others who don't measure up to your standard, no matter how you try to spin it, you are not doing it God's way. You can't be. There are no categories of people that it is good and right for you to hate. Jesus has eliminated that option. Many Christians have concluded fellowship with one another is determined by where you stand on certain issues. And less and less the issues are about the Trinity or the deity of Christ or the authority of Scripture. More and more it's where do you line up on these social issues? And if you line up the way I want you to line up and you say the things I want you to say in the way that we expect you to say, all right, we'll welcome you. Until then, get out of my face. I want nothing to do with you. You disgust me. So my point is this. Jesus is exposing the fatal error in judgment. Theoretically, Simon knows what love is, what mercy is, what forgiveness is. Theoretically, he knows exactly what God demands or commands. But at the same time, he believes that he has met the mark. He is so superior to this woman that he has no need to bother with Jesus or her because he's got it all figured out. And Jesus says, do you see this woman? Do you see her and how you're treating her? Now, Jesus is honoring this, wo- this woman where Simon is dishonoring her. And what this means, I think, is this. The way we honor or dishonor other people is a reflection of how we are related to God. That is to say, if we feel justified and we feel it's legitimate to dishonor other people, to not love them or whatever... Something's off with our relationship with the Lord. Something's gone wrong. In fact, the Apostle Paul says, look, if if you're going to compare yourself to anybody and you're going to see whether or not you measure up or they measure up to see whether or not you're accepted or they're accepted, if you're going to play that game of competition, okay, play this game. Love one another with brotherly affection. 
Be willing to lay down your life for somebody. And if you want to compete, then here's what you should compete at. Outdo one another in showing honor. Instead of saying, who can be the most outraged? Who can be the most offended? Who can be the most bombastic? Who can post the most ludicrous stuff? Who can get the most likes and shares? Instead, we said, who, who can I honor? And we look at each other and I go, I'm going to honor people more than you. I'm going to love people way better than you do. Watch me. I think it would change things. And this is exactly what we see throughout the New Testament is that when we have had an engagement with the Lord, it changes us. And the evidence of that change will be a lot of times in how we treat other people. So the Bible is really clear. As you have been forgiven, go and forgive others. As you have been welcomed, go and welcome others. As you have been honored, as you have been loved, go and do likewise. Which is to say, if you're not honoring, loving, and forgiving others, it calls into question, have you been loved, honored yourself? And the chances perhaps are no. So Jesus tells Simon, look at this, the rest of this. Do you see this woman? And then he says, I entered your house, Simon. And then he's going to list all these acts of hospitality. He says, you gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. Now, what's amazing about this is that washing someone's feet is a sign of honor and respect. So if you don't wash a guest's feet when they come into your house, what you're saying is, I don't honor you, nor do I respect you. So here's Simon saying, welcome to my house, Jesus. And Jesus is expecting his feet to get washed. And Simon's like, no, not doing that. I don't respect you. I don't honor you. But what does the woman do? She washes his feet. I respect you, Jesus. I honor you, Jesus. And then he goes on. He says, you gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. Kiss is a greeting. So you kiss someone's hand if they were more important than you, or you kiss them on their cheek if you were equals. Simon said, I'm not kissing you at all. You're so beneath me, I'm not even kissing your hand. And yet here is this woman kissing Jesus' feet. Meaning, you are so exalted and so honored above me, I can't even compare. I, I kiss the lowest part of you because you're so much greater than I. And then the anointing of oil, he says, she has anointed my feet with it. Anointing with oil is where you put your guest in the greatest place of honor. These rules of hospitality were practiced throughout the ancient world and they are the way in which we receive strangers and we transform the relationship from merely being strangers into being friends. And Simon says, I will not be your friend. And the woman says, oh, I'm your friend. Now Jesus is going to identify the reason why this woman gives so generously her of herself to him. 
And he goes on to say this, therefore. And the word therefore, you can't see it in Greek. A lot of times we think of the therefore as being the result of something. So like she anointed his feet and did all this stuff. Therefore, this is the result. But instead, uh, the Greek word here, especially in its context, is less about the result and more about the reason. And so it's answering the question, why did she do this? Why did she act this way? And here's our answer. Her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much. In other words, because her sins are forgiven, she has loved me much. Well, how do I know that she's loved you much? Look at her at my feet honoring me, serving me, respecting me in humility. And so, because of the parable in verses 41 through 42, Jesus says, if you have a big debt and you're forgiven it, man, you have a lot of love. If you have a small amount of debt and you're forgiven, you're like, yeah, whatever. This woman is over, just whelmed with gratitude and is displaying it in this effectual love towards Jesus. Why? Because she has been forgiven of so much. And this reveals the very heart of God. He says, but he who is forgiven little loves little. Is it perhaps the reason why you are so cold towards God is because you think you're pretty good? Is it You have no affections for the Lord? A result of the fact that you don't think you're all that great of a sinner? And if you want to look at a great sinner, go look at your neighbor, you know? Like Tom down the street, now that guy's a sinner. Me, my gutters are clean. My lawn is mowed. My car is washed. I have a job. And so... You don't have much to be forgiven of, and therefore your affections towards God are very small. This shows how much. Ah, this, yeah. Let's keep going. This hospitality that we're seeing here is important for us to understand because Jesus says this verse 20 I stand at the door and I knock. That is the door of your heart. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, He says, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. The way that Jesus pictures salvation is through hospitality. Because sharing a meal together is giving one another your life. To share a table together is to share a life together. And so Jesus is saying, Simon, you are not showing any hospitality except for the food. And it shows that you have no relationship with me. And it shows that your sins are not forgiven. This woman, however, reassuring us, here's what John says, if we confess our sins, that's the one thing we don't want to do. You and I want to save face more than anything. We don't want people to know the true self. But if we do confess our sins, or we just redefine sins, so then we don't have to confess very much. God is faithful and just. He will forgive us our sins. He will cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, here's the thing. If we become like Simon and we say that we have not sinned, we make God a liar. 
Because God's word says all of us have sinned and fall short of his glorious standard. If you say you haven't fallen short, then you make God a liar. You say that his word is not true. But more than that, it shows that his word is not in you. And so we confess our sins to God. And as James 5 says, we confess our sins to one another. And if you don't have much sin to confess, it's either one of two things usually. One, you're lying. Or one, you just don't recognize your own sinfulness. So that's the difference between Simon and the sinful woman. She knows her need. She has received forgiveness. And she has responded to God's grace with love. Simon, however, believes that he isn't in need. He doesn't need to be forgiven. And therefore, he responds to God's grace with cold indifference. Eh, whatever. Verse 49. Or verse 48, excuse me. So Jesus says to her, this is a declaration. He is declaring her to her, your sins are forgiven. In other words, you are justified. I forgive you. Your sins have been blotted out. And if you notice, she didn't come to Jesus and earn this. It was the response. She's responding to grace. She's responding to forgiveness. And what's amazing about that is what he then says to her, your faith has saved you. Not your alabaster flask of ointment. Not your tears. Not your wiping my feet. Your faith has saved you. I love what Jerry Bridges wrote in his book, The Pursuit of Holiness. He said, even our tears of repentance need to be washed in the blood of the Lamb. Your faith saves you. Jesus accepts this woman, welcomes this woman, but he also does not want this woman to remain as she is. And so he offers this blessing to her. He says in three words, go in peace. You now have a clear conscience. You don't have the wrath of God hanging over your head anymore. I've seen you. I know you. I know what you've done. I know what you do. I know your reputation. I know your pain. I know your sorrow. I know your anguish. I know that you feel like you're worthless. I know that you feel like you have no dignity, no respect, and I see you. And having seen you, you can now go in peace. I imagine she left that house happy. God sees me. He knows me. He has not left me. Let me point this out before we close. Soren Kierkegaard, who's a Christian philosopher, he writes this. He says, too often it has been overlooked that the opposite of sin is not virtue. You and I think that virtue is one side and sin is the opposite. And he writes, it's not that. He says, this is in part a pagan view, which is content with merely a human measure. And it doesn't properly know that or it doesn't properly know what sin is. After all, sin is before God. In other words, sin is oriented always towards God, first and foremost. He says, no, the opposite of sin is faith. It's faith. It's affirmed in Romans 14, 23, he writes, whatsoever is not of faith is sin. 
So if you read Romans 14, 23, you would see anything that does not proceed from faith is sin. <laughs> Think of how like, oh man, that's terrible. I didn't brush my teeth this morning in faith. Ah, I brushed my teeth in sin. I didn't put my shoes on in faith. I put my shoes on in sin. And you'd be like, well, everywhere I go, I'm just sinning. That's the point. Where are you going to turn to be sinless if sin is faithlessness? And see, when you categorize sin as simply the opposite of virtue, or you categorize virtue as the opposite of sin, then all you have to do to no longer be a sinner is to be more moral. Just try harder, do better. And then you will no longer be in the category of sinner. But if the opposite of sin is faith, then the only way to be moved out of the category of sinner is to have faith in Jesus. So as we look at this story, Simon is exuding all kind of virtue and all kind of moral superiority compared to this woman. And many of us would prefer Simon than this woman. Many of us would ignore her if she was to come into our church today. Many of us would bypass her, not want to greet her. But somebody who has a nice pea coat and some nice shoes on and is well-dressed with well-behaved kids, we may want to engage them. That's just kind of the nature of how it is now. And if we understand what is the opposite of sin and all this kind of stuff, then look at this. Simon or the woman, which has moved from the category of sinner out of that category? And the answer is only the woman. Now, on this first Sunday of 2022, it's good for us that we share communion. And the reason why it's good for us is because as we eat and drink today, the bread and the juice, we are in a way experiencing God's hospitality. God is saying, come and eat with me. Come and drink with me. He is eating and drinking with sinners. And in being welcomed to come to Jesus to eat and to drink in remembrance of him, we are being invited into his life and we're together being invited into one another's life. God is unifying us as we eat and drink in his name. And we are remembering that it's only by the blood of Jesus that we are cleansed from all unrighteousness. It is only by faith in Jesus that we are transferred from the domain of darkness, the category of sinner, into the new category of redeemed. It's not our works, it's not our virtue, it's not our morality, it's not our love, it's not our service that does it. It is faith in Jesus that saves us. And if we are to ever hear those words, go in peace, it will only be because we have first responded to his grace by faith. And so this is important. What Jesus says in Matthew 26 about the Lord's Supper, he said, to his disciples after he took the bread, he blessed it, broke it, gave it to them, take, eat, this is my body. He took a cup and when he given thanks, he gave it to them, he says, drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Jesus shed his blood for this unnamed, undignified, disrespected, dishonored woman He shed his blood for her that she might have forgiveness, a clear conscience, peace, and so that she would have a name and she would have a place 
and she would have a people to belong to. And brothers and sisters, we eat and drink in remembrance of this. And as the people of God, after having eaten and drinking, we go out and we teach people this. There are no categories of people that we are right to hate. Jesus has eliminated that option. So Father, I pray as we come now and we have opportunity to eat and drink in remembrance of you that you would meet with us. God, as we take this bread into our hands, we are remembering the body of Jesus, the body that laid reclining at the table. Your feet that were drenched with tears, anointed with oil. The beautiful feet that brings good news to the weary and to the broken and to the destitute. The body which was crucified. We are remembering through this juice, this cup, the blood of Jesus that cleanses, that brings forgiveness and redemption, that grants a clean conscience, that justifies us. And so I pray, Lord, that when we eat and drink, you will be pleased to meet with us and remind us of these things. And we'll thank you for what you do in Jesus' name. Amen. The Lord Jesus invites all those who have repented of their sins and who believe in him who have confessed their sins and have received his grace and forgiveness. He invites you to come to eat and drink as a way as a church to celebrate what God has done for us. If you're not yet a Christian, you have not yet confessed your sin, you have not yet repented of your sins, we just ask that you let the the baskets pass by, kind of remembering and helping you to understand that you're letting salvation pass by. But if you're here today and you know your sin and you know you need forgiveness, then this is an opportunity for you to confess that sin, to cry out to God to save you. And if you do that today, then we invite you to take the cup and you can join us in celebrating what God has done for us in Christ and we can celebrate eating and drinking together. As we have learned today, this blood of Jesus is what cleanses us. It's the body of Jesus, God come in human flesh, that has secured for us an eternal redemption. And we as the church come and we eat and we drink in remembrance of this, that God would unify us, God would nourish us, God would strengthen us so that we can be well equipped to do all that he has commanded us to do as we leave here. Not in order to earn his grace, but as a response to having received his grace already. And so, as the folks come forward and they're going to pass these uh, cups out, I I ask that you simply take one of the little chalices, you hold on to it, we're going to eat and drink together to signify our unity. But I want to invite you to listen to this text, 1 Corinthians 11, 23, 24, 25. Paul says, I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread and we had given thanks, he broke it. He said, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying this cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you drink this bread, or eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So church, what we're going to do now is simply reflect. Sit in silence, free of distraction. And contemplate just how much forgiveness God has given us.
I'm going to invite you to take your chalice bread side up. Open up that top layer. As real as this bread is in your hand, there were real tears shed on the real feet of Jesus himself. God has truly come in a body. And in his body, he lived the life we couldn't. In his body, he was crucified. In his body, it was buried. His body resurrected. His body ascended and his body is coming back. And as real as this bread is in your hands, these things are real. So Jesus says, this is my body, which is given for you. Take it and eat it in remembrance of me. So church, let us remember Jesus. I invite you to turn over the chalice carefully. Likewise, as we look at this juice in this cup, its redness, we see that it's liquid, reminding us of the blood of Jesus. The blood of Jesus, which was poured out for you for the forgiveness of sins, not reluctantly, but joyfully, for Jesus wanted you for himself. And this juice symbolizing his blood is what gives us redemption, reconciliation, forgiveness, a clear conscience that we may serve the living God. Jesus said, this is my blood of the new covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Drink it, all of you, in remembrance of me. So church, let us remember Jesus. In Matthew 26, 30, after the disciples shared the Lord's Supper and he instituted the Lord's Supper, they sang a hymn and then they left. And so we're going to follow that same pattern today. So, Father, I pray in our singing of this closing hymn, God, you would grant to us an overflowing affection of love and of gratitude for the grace, forgiveness, mercy that you have extended to us. Father, we have already sung that our sins are many, but your grace is even more. Your mercies are even more. Your love is even more. And now as we reflect upon the debt of sin that we all have, we also confess to you through singing that Jesus has paid it all. And now we are white as snow. Thank you for this healing. Thank you for this forgiveness. Thank you for your grace and mercy. And I pray that we will now sing to you and each other to encourage our hearts before you. God, grant to us in our forgiveness great love. And may it extend and outpour and flow into all those around us as we honor, serve, love, and respect, dignify whomever we encounter. For your glory, we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.